For years, I thought coffee tasted like ashes and that it was nasty, and maybe some of you still feel that way, but what I did, and what I'd, I'd had teachers and professors in college and friends just try to get me to try coffee, and they're like, oh, you should try my coffee, and I'm like, it tastes like ashes. You should try this coffee. It still tastes like ashes. And eventually, somebody made me coffee that was like 5% coffee and 95% sugar and whipped cream and milk and all this other stuff. And I said, that tastes pretty good. And so I kind of slowly started weaning myself off of all the sugar and stuff onto actual coffee to where now it doesn't taste at least as much like ashes. But um, I enjoy that taste, if that makes any sense. So I started developing this taste for coffee. I've been reading this week a book that I got. Um, it's a book that was written by a Puritan named John Owen in, um, I believe, the 1800s. It's called The Glory of Christ. And he says this. He makes this statement in the beginning. He says, No one shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. What does that mean? You won't see the glory of Christ. And trust me, when you get to heaven, you are going to see the glory of Christ. You're going to see him in all of his power and glory, just like Peter and John did at the transfiguration. You're going to see Christ for who he is. But no one is going to see Christ in heaven who did not, by faith, understand his glory here on earth. Every one of us who will see Christ in his glory in heaven will accept him by faith here on earth through the gospel. Now, I've thought about this and I've thought about people, you know, we always we've grown up thinking this, that everybody wants to go to heaven. Right. And, and I think if you were to ask even an unsafe person who um, was separated from God in hell, they would not want to be in punishment. But John Owen makes this other quote in his book that I think is interesting. He talks about those who never see the light of the gospel. And he says, should they be admitted to heaven, they would never enjoy it. You might say, well, certainly they wouldn't want to die and be separated from God in hell. And that is true. But they would never appreciate the glory of Christ. Why? Because they don't know Christ. Because they never understood his glory here on earth. You see, the truth for those people who don't know Christ is that their home is earth. And they are focused on the things of the world. John says in 1 John that they love the world and the things of the world. They've bought the world's goods. But for Christians, I think C.S. Lewis sums it up best like this. He says, I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. And the most probable explanation is that I was made for a different world. Through the gospel... Through understanding the glory of Christ by faith here on earth, we are developing a taste for heaven. We are slowly, it's not something we wanted when we were unsaved. We were happy, we were satisfied in the world. But no matter how old you were when you were saved, no matter when you accepted the gospel, you are now slowly starting to develop a taste for heaven. This world becomes less of your home. And you start longing for being in heaven with your Savior. You long to be with Christ. And as we look at the world, it gets crazier and crazier and more radical and more sinful. And even unsafe people can see that. But for us, it just reminds us 
that this world is not our home. But we long for the glory of Christ. We're just passing through. We long to be in his presence. In our text today, Stephen, who we saw last week, was a deacon of the early church, a servant in the church, probably one of, in my opinion, the first actual deacons that we see in Scripture today. He defends the gospel by explaining the Old Testament in the face of opposition and persecution. We've been talking about in this Acts series, there's opposition to the Christian movement both outside and inside the church. Outside the church through persecution, right? They arrested the apostles a couple different times. And yet through outside opposition, they were saved. Even an angel releases them from prison at one point. They continue to preach the gospel faithfully. At one point, they are given lashes. They're whipped. And yet we see what happens. The word of God increases. The church grows. They become united. They give to one another. We've also seen some challenges inside the church. The first one because of sin with Ananias and Sapphira, this church discipline case where they were holding back some of the money they had gained from selling their property. They lied to the church and they threatened the unity and fellowship inside the church and God killed them for that. The second issue we looked at last week, there was strife, there was contention in the church, but it wasn't necessarily a sin issue, it was an administrative issue within the church. And so the apostles say you need to appoint qualified leaders who can serve in those areas and bless the church. And what do we see happens? The word of God increases. The church is multiplied. People are saved. God blesses his church. And in today's text, we see once again, outside opposition to the church. And in Stephen's response to this opposition, he preaches what I believe is one of the greatest sermons that is ever recorded. And he, in one sense, makes my job easy because I'm preaching a sermon, but my sermon is just to help us understand Stephen's sermon. He's already done all the work. He's already done all the work in the Old Testament. What I want to help us do today is understand what he's saying and how that applies to us. And this is what I think his point is. What he wants us to see, what I want us to see from this text is this. The glorious Christ offers salvation to all who have rejected him. The glorious Christ offers salvation to all who have rejected him. Throughout this story, we're going to see the glory of God and the glory of Christ clearly on display, both in what Stephen says and what happens to him before and after he says what he says. We see that Christ is glorious, and Stephen, because he has this connection to Christ, he takes on some of this glory from Christ. His face looks like an angel. He seeks Christ in heaven. Christ is glorious, and he offers salvation For all who have rejected him. The gospel is made clear in this text. But what's also made just as clear is that Israel is a nation who has rejected God's leaders, his purpose, his his way of salvation throughout history. And they reject Christ. But Christ still offers them salvation. So as we see this develop, we're going to see it develop in several movements. And I wasn't very creative in my sermon outline 
but that's only because I want us to understand the text. And I thought this was the most simple way to do it. So first of all, we see Stephen's arrest. We see Stephen's arrest in verses 8 through 15. Look at verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, in the, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen is full of grace and power. Now grace, we know the grace of God saves us, it trains us. But grace here actually just means favor. People liked what they heard. He was charismatic. We saw in last week's passage, he's one of the early deacons. So he's not actually an apostle. He's not even an elder in the church. He's a servant. He's a deacon. And he's actually doing some physical tasks for the church. But notice it doesn't stop him from preaching the gospel. He's still preaching the gospel faithfully. It doesn't stop him from being knowledgeable of the scriptures as well. He's full of grace and power, I believe, just means function to be able to do what he needed to do. Now, part of what he was doing was miracles. It says he was doing great signs and wonders. Luke has used this term several times in Acts to tell us that there were some miraculous things going on. He might have been healing people. We don't get specifics into what is going on with Stephen but we do know he's full of grace and power. People liked him. He's able to do what God has called him to do. And he's making people mad. Now, we talked about this in Sunday school. We want to share the gospel with people, but we want to do so with grace. We don't want to be rude to them. But the gospel is going to naturally bring up opposition. And that's what we see in verse 9, that there's these people from these different groups. The freedmen were freed slaves, probably from Pompeii, who had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. There's all these different people groups from these different regions who also, I believe, had synagogues in Jerusalem during this time. And they all have problems with what Stephen is saying. And so they go and they start arguing with them. They start disputing with them. But notice verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was such a gifted communicator, but not just because of himself, but because he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Now that means he's sanctified. He's a good, godly Christian man. But being full of the Holy Spirit as well means you're speaking God's words. Stephen was giving the message of God as he's preaching the gospel. And so if you're up against the Holy Spirit, if you're up against God, you're always going to lose. And they can't stand, they can't argue with Stephen. So they resort to lying about him. In verse 11, we see that they instigated men who would say that he's blasphemous. And notice, this is important going into Stephen's sermons. He says, We've, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So he's blasphemy means to... Um, speak obscenities or to deny God's power. So we've heard him speak blasphemy against Moses, the Mosaic law. And this is important as we get into Stephen's sermon against God, who he is. He's not a, they're saying he's not a follower of God. We see later they start to stir up these elders and scribes to arrest Stephen. And notice what they say in verse 13. It says, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, talking about the temple and the law. 
So there's three different things they're accusing Stephen of. He's blaspheming God, he's blaspheming the Mosaic Law, and he's blaspheming the temple. And Stephen will address all of these in his sermon. How is he blaspheming the temple? It says in verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered unto us. Now Jesus did say that he would destroy this temple and rise up again. They didn't really understand what he was speaking of. But he didn't say that he would be the one to do that, first of all. He also said that he would raise it up again. So they're really misquoting Jesus here. And then misquoting Jesus or misquoting Stephen and his message saying he's against the temple. It also says that he was trying to change the customs of Moses. Stephen's going to make it very clear that he's a follower of God, that he's not against the law, and that he's really not against the temple. Now notice in verse 15 it says, And gazing at them, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. This is where we start to see even the glory of Christ. Not that Stephen did anything in and of himself, but as he's preaching Christ and the message of Christ, his face starts shining. And we don't know exactly what this looks like. We don't know if it was like a heavenly glow coming down from heaven. We don't know if his face just happened to look good that day for whatever reason. But whatever this means, there was something unique about him. He looked like an angel. Angel in Greek, angelos, actually means messenger. The angels are God's messengers. And I find it interesting here that Stephen looks like an angel as he is going to be a messenger of the gospel of God. He is sharing this message with the people. And so look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said... Are these things so? We see Stephen's arrest. We secondly see Stephen's sermon. Ananias is questioning Stephen to ask if these things are so. And in Stephen's sermon, we're going to see three major themes. We're going to have all these different movements that we talk about here in a moment. But different from that, there's three themes that I want us to focus on. The first one is this, that Israel rejected God's leaders. Israel rejected God's leaders. And throughout all these different movements in the sermon, we're going to see that theme coming back up, that Israel rejected God's leaders. We'll see the examples that Luke gives us, that he, where he quotes Stephen in the sermon. He's going to talk about Moses and Joseph and David and Abraham. And throughout all those movements in history, Israel rejected the leaders that God gave them. Secondly, we're going to see the transcendence of God. That God does not have to be worshipped in a temple. He cannot be contained in a building, but he is transcendent. He cannot be contained. And this is important when we talk about the temple. Stephen wasn't against the temple, but he's saying you don't have to worship God in the temple. In fact, the temple can't contain God. He's transcendent. Lastly, we're going to see the glory of Christ, specifically through the gospel. All of this builds towards a climax at the end where the gospel is preached, the glory of Christ is shown, and unfortunately it's ultimately rejected. And so this sermon is 53 verses long, starting in verse 2. Let's first of all see the plan of God with Abraham. The plan of God with Abraham. Look at verse 2. 
And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory also appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Notice that he says the glory of God there appeared to him. Again, we get this initial statement of God's glory. Now, why does he start with Abraham? And one of the most interesting things about Stephen's sermon is not just what he includes, but also what he doesn't include. Remember, it's a long sermon, but he can't include every single aspect of Israel's history. Why does he include Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of Israel. It is the promise given to Abraham in which it's said that he would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would number the stars. And so the story of Abraham is near and dear to the hearts of Israel. We see in verse 2 that God appears to Abraham. The glory of God appears to him. There's some debate over the specific place of where God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12. But Stephen is just summarizing. He's saying that God went to Abraham, tells him to leave his land in verse 3, and go to a land that he would show them. So he introduces this initial promise from God that he would give Abraham this land. We see that Abraham is faithful. In verse 4, it talks about how he left from that land, the land of the Chaldeans, and lived in Haran. And then God, and how God continued to move Abraham. In verse 5 it says, Yet he gave him no inheritance in, it, in the land, not even the foot length, but promised to give him as possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. We start seeing the promise of God given to Abraham. Even though Abraham didn't have any children, this is still promised to Abraham during this time. Verse 6, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them. That's such an interesting thing that Stephen brings up. That God predicted to Abraham that later on his people would be enslaved. And he's going to spend the most time of his sermon talking about Moses. And talking about how Israel rejected Moses, they also reject Christ. What's well, predicted to Abraham that his children would be slaves in a foreign land now to abraham he's thinking well i have no children at this point so i don't know how this is going to happen and again there's so much more stephen could say about this there's a lot more we could say but the biggest point here is that abraham is having to trust god that god's going to give him the land even though he doesn't have it yet and that he's going to have to give him children that he's going to have as many children as the stars even though Abraham doesn't have any children at this time, that Abraham would have to trust in the promises of God. And we see that it's by faith that Abraham does this. In verse 7 it says, But I will judge the nation that they serve. We see that through the Exodus. And after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Why does Stephen bring that up, that they would worship him in this place, in the land? Well, there's no temple at this point. He's starting to plant the early seeds that God doesn't have to be worshipped in the temple. And he's going to show that throughout these different movements. In verse 8, he talks about circumcision. It says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Why does he bring up circumcision? 
Circumcision was a physical sign of God's promise to Abraham. It was a physical manifestation that Israel should be separate from the other people and therefore separate from sin. We see that Abraham follows that promise by circumcising his son, Isaac. And so Stephen, in this first movement, he's showing that he's not against God. He says, the God of our fathers. He's lumping himself in with Israel and saying, we all have the same God. We all serve the same God, the same creator. Abraham was my father, just like he's your father as well. He's not denying circumcision here. Even though Paul would later say, you don't have to be circumcised, you're free in Christ. Stephen is highlighting this covenant of circumcision, showing that he's not against the law. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't spend any time talking about Isaac or even the story of Jacob. Just he mentions their names. He secondly focuses on Joseph. In verse 9, it talks about the second person or focus of this sermon is Joseph. Notice it calls his brothers in verse 9 the patriarchs. Patriarch is a father. It's the central father figures. We know that the 12 tribes of Israel were the 12 patriarchs or Joseph's other brothers. We see in the story of Joseph that they were jealous of him. We all know the story very well that Joseph had a dream that he would be over his father. He'd be over, he'd be over his brothers. And they became jealous of him. You know, some people will say, some even preachers will say that it's not right for Joseph to have told his brothers that, but yet God revealed that to Joseph. And what Stephen is showing is that if God revealed that to Joseph, then Joseph was God's promised plan of salvation for his brothers. And we, so we start seeing this early theme here of them rejecting God's Savior for them. Now, Joseph was not Christ. He was not going to save them from their sins. But he's telling them that he would save them, and they reject him. It says they were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. So what do we start seeing? A rebellious nation who's against Joseph. We also see the providence of God in the person that he's chosen. He chose Joseph to save Israel, to save his brothers and the favor of God was with him. In verse 10, it says he rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. It doesn't talk about any of those individual stories, even though we know them. Joseph with Potiphar. Joseph with Potiphar's wife. He goes to prison. He ends up having these dreams that he goes to Pharaoh with. Pharaoh makes him a governor over Egypt. And he has a prominent place in this nation in a very strategic time. What, what is that? We'll look at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. There started becoming trouble for the children of Jacob. They couldn't find any food. And at this specific time, Joseph is governor of Egypt. And we know that in his wisdom and the wisdom God gave him, Egypt held food back during the profitable years so they had plenty of food during this famine. So we see that Stephen explains Jacob sent his sons to Egypt. The first time, Joseph doesn't reveal himself to his brothers. The second time, he does reveal himself to his brothers. And his family becomes known to Pharaoh. So he's rehearsing the history of Israel. 
showing how the Israelites' forefathers, or the patriarchs, came to Egypt in the first place. And again, he's going to spend the most time talking about Moses in Egypt and everything that happens there. So he's setting up some of that here. He's also showing the providence of God in saving Israel. You might think, well, why would they go to Egypt? They're going to be enslaved there later. Well, if they would have stayed in Canaan, they would have died. There was no food there. So it was either go to Egypt or die in Canaan. And they weren't slaves at first. They became slaves throughout several hundred years after that. So Joseph moves his whole family there. And there's this little section at the end of his explanation of Joseph where he talks about how the brothers' bones were carried back to Shechem in the tomb that Abraham had bought for them, signaling that they were going to go back to the promised land, that God still had that promised land for them. Now, Joseph was buried in Egypt because he was so prominent there. And so again, in the plan, in the story of Joseph, we see what happens, a rebellious people. It's just his brothers. They are rebelling against God's plan for them, against this deliverer who he's given them. Yet Joseph saves them because of the plan of God. We see his wisdom. We see God's redemption in this. We see God's favor with Joseph. And now we get to what is the largest portion of Stephen's sermon, and where he talks about Moses, God's plan with Moses. He's going to talk about Moses' life in three 40-year segments. His first, and some people don't realize this, so Moses was in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life. He's in Egypt during that time. Then, in the second 40 years, he's on the run from Egypt because he kills that Egyptian. And we'll talk about this more in a second. When Moses goes back to Pharaoh, he is 80 years old. Can you imagine that? Now, again, they lived longer back then during that time, but Moses is 80 years old during the Exodus. He dies at 120 years old, so there's three 40-year segments of Moses' life. And through the story of Moses, we're going to see him leading God's people, even when they are rebellious. So look at verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So the Israelites are growing over a couple hundred years. We also see that there's another pharaoh, it says another king in verse 18, but it's another pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. So after so many different generations, Israel's not favored anymore, but there's a different pharaoh who decides to enslave them in Egypt. It says in verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants, to kill their children. And I want to point this out because we're going to talk about this more in the sermon. If you've studied Old Testament history, especially Israel in the wilderness, what do they often do? They say, we should go back to Egypt. Everything was better in Egypt. We didn't have to deal with, we didn't have to eat manna. We didn't have to do all this wandering around in the wilderness. We should just go back to Egypt. What would have happened had they stayed in Egypt? They were killing all the baby boys. If you don't have men, you can't have more children. Israel would have gone extinct. So what they're really saying is, we would rather go extinct than stay here in the wilderness. It just shows you the 
lunacy and the hypocrisy and just how crazy Israel was getting in rejecting God's plan. So he wanted to kill these baby boys, but we see God's providence in saving Moses. It says Moses was born in verse 20. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. They hid Moses from the Egyptians. But we all know the story. Eventually, Pharaoh's daughter saves him. And he's brought up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. It says he brought, she brought him up as her own son. Now, verse 22 is oftentimes neglected. A neglected part of Moses' life. It says, Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses had a good education. This made him a good leader. Now, obviously, God made him a good leader and speaker. But Moses had a good Egyptian education, which God used in freeing his people. Now, this is interesting because Moses would later say, I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good with words. Yet every other time in Exodus, when Moses talks, he seems pretty confident. He seems pretty good with his words. So I really think in those instances, he's trying to get out of the plan that God has for him. But God still gives him Aaron, who was a good speaker. Now look at verse 23. It says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. So we see this is the end of that first 40-year segment where he's in Egypt. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He started to tell the story of Moses killing the Egyptian man. And again, if you've heard this preached, people will often say, maybe rightfully so, that Moses was wrong in this circumstance. Yet, look at verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation. Moses knew that he was going to be the savior of God's people out of Egypt. And maybe they would understand, hey, I killed this Egyptian. I'm going to lead us out of this land of Egypt. But that's not how it happened, is it? And why not? Look at verse 26. And the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling. So two different Israelites are fighting with each other. And he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor, so there was obviously something, someone who was doing wrong in the situation. Notice what he says. He says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Who put you in charge, Moses? You're not even really with us in slavery. He says, do you want to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? You know, we know that you really killed that Egyptian. Are you going to kill us too, Moses? And so for that reason, Moses flees for his life and becomes an exile in Midian. And I bring that up because oftentimes we think what Moses did was brash and wrong. And maybe that's so. But Stephen seems to recognize that Moses was a savior of God's people out of Egypt. Yet God's people early on, rejected Moses' leadership. Look at verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire with a bush. So again, we see one of God's angels, one of his messengers appears to Moses 
in this flame of fire. It says, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near, and there came the voice of the Lord. So God is speaking through this burning bush to Moses during this time. This is at the end of that second 40 years. Now he's 80 at this point. Notice what God says to him in verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why is this important? Why does Stephen, again, the things in the sermon that are so interesting, what does he include? What does he not include? Why does Stephen include this? God is worshipped, but he's not worshipped inside of the temple. He's worshipped in Midian, of all places, apart from the people of God, apart from his temple, apart from the tabernacle. Yet Moses worships God in Midian. Just interesting as Stephen builds his argument. He says in verse 34, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. God sees the affliction of his people. We see here the faithfulness of God, the providence of God, seeing his afflicted people, sending Moses to save his afflicted people. And notice verse 35, it points back to, again, the fact that Moses was rejected. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both a ruler, someone to lead his people, and a redeemer, a savior of his people. Now, Moses didn't die on the cross for their sins. But in Scripture, we oftentimes see the exodus, Israel leaving Egypt, as an example of God saving them and a sign of what was to come in redemption with Christ. God saved Israel from Egypt in their physical affliction. God would later send Christ who would save them from their spiritual affliction. Several months ago, we talked about communion and the Passover and in our Easter series. And we said that the Passover has several different elements in the Old Testament where it talks about Israel being freed from Egypt. It celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And so in communion, in the same way, we celebrate our deliverance from sin. Even in this passage, we start seeing comparisons that Stephen is giving us of Moses delivering his people, but yet God's people rejecting Moses. Verse 36, it said, This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt through the plagues. And at the Red Sea, remember he parts the Red Sea and then in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses leads his people out. He follows God's plan. In verse 37, we see that he foretells of another. It says in verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me for your brothers. Now, everybody thinks this is going to happen in Joshua. Joshua is going to come and be the next Moses. And that's partially true. But Stephen seems to be indicating that Moses is pointing even deeper in history, even more ahead to Christ, who would save the people from their sins. Now he finally talks about Moses in one last section, dealing with, again, the rejection 
of Israel to God's plan. In verse 38, he says, this is the one who is in the congregation. It's interesting, that word congregation is ecclesia. It means called out ones or assembly. It's actually the same word we have for church. Now, it doesn't mean that I think that Israel is the church, but he's comparing, again, the people of God to later, who would be the called out people of God and acts. In verse 38, he says, This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? It says he received living oracles to give us. What was that? The law. God gave Moses the law. Stephen's saying, I'm not against the law. God gave Moses the law. But notice what happens while Moses is getting the law. In verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. They rejected Moses. They rejected God. They rejected God's law. They're saying, Stephen, you're blaspheming God's law. No, Israel rejected God's law in this moment. In verse 40, they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as we do not know, or who will go before us as Moses who led us out from the land, we do not know what has become of him. They say, we don't know what happened to Moses. He's getting this law from God. We need gods in our own images. We need this golden calf. They start perverting God's law. They start trying to have their own way of relating to God in idol worship. It says, he made them the calf in verse 41, and they were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Again, they're trying to take worship of God into their own hands. They are blaspheming God's law. And in verse 42, it says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. Hosts of heaven is not angels here, but actually the stars and the moon. And he quotes Amos. It's Amos 5, 25 through 27. Now, this is a book written after the time of Moses, but it describes the idol worship in the hearts of Israel. It says, Did you not bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? So they tried to sacrifice to God and worshiping him. But notice what else they did. You took up the tent of Molech. Molech was the god of the underworld in the Canaanite land. People would sacrifice their children to him. And later in Israel's history... There were kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, who sacrificed their children to Molech. Again, what do we see here? They're rejecting God. They're rejecting God's worship. They don't worship God like they should. They're perverting it. And the star of your God, Raphan, he was the God of the stars. The images you made to worship. And I will send you in exile to Babylon. Because of their idol worship, he's sending them to Babylon for punishment. In verse 44, just as our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses who directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. The last little piece of information he gives us about Moses is that he made the tabernacle, which was a portable place of worship to God. So again, he's saying God is not always worshiped in the temple. He's worshipped here in the tabernacle. Now in verses 45 through 50, he's going to show the plan of God in the temple. He's going to 
fast forward through some of Israel's history and showing the rest of the plan of God and specifically how it relates to the temple. With Moses, he's shown how people have rejected God's plan for a savior, for a deliverer throughout its history. Here we'll see the plan of God in the temple in verse 45. Our fathers, in turn, brought with it, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the fathers. So they bring the tabernacle with them. One interesting note I'll say about Joshua here. His name is a Hebrew equivalent to Jesus. That's what his name would be transliterated. Not that Joshua died for the people's sins, but that he was a deliverer of Israel during this time. So it was until the days of David. He jumps all the way ahead from Joshua to David, who found favor in the sight of God. So David, it says, was a man after God's own heart. And what did he want to do? He wanted to build a dwelling place of God. He wanted to build God's temple. But if you know Israel's history, you know God didn't let David build the temple. Why? Because he was a man of war. So Solomon ended up building God's temple. In verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And this is what he's showing. God is transcendent. He can't be confined or contained to a building. He quotes here Isaiah 66, 1, where God is saying he's not contained to a building. He says, heaven is my throne. We've talked about in Wednesday night prayer meeting how God sits in heaven. That is his dwelling place. Earth cannot contain him. In fact, he says, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or a place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Why is the temple not enough to hold God? Because God made everything on earth. So we see the plan of God. God wanted a temple. They made a temple to worship God, but that's not the only place God can be worshipped. Now, lastly, in Stephen's sermon, I want us to see God's plan and Christ. He doesn't end with an encouraging note for them. In fact, imagine if I preached to you guys this way in one of my sermons. He says, you stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked refers to their time in the wilderness. It means they refuse to listen to God. He calls them uncircumcised in hearts and ears. They are spiritually dead. They will not cooperate with God. They refuse to understand spiritual truth. Lastly, he says they reject the work of the Spirit. God's Spirit is working, but yet they reject the work of the Spirit. And the whole point of the sermon is that they have rejected the glorious Christ. All of this points to a future Messiah Savior of Israel. And look at verse 52. It says, Which of your prophets did your father not persecute? So in the same way Stephen is persecuted, in the same way Christ is persecuted, the prophets were also persecuted as well. Yet what did they do? They predicted Christ. It says, And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. They killed those who told of the coming of of Christ. And again, what did the temple, what did the Sanhedrin say back in Acts 5? They said, hey, 
Stop preaching Christ. Also, stop saying that we killed Christ. Okay, that's making everyone upset. Notice what Stephen says. He says, whom you murdered, whom you betrayed, who you killed. They rejected Christ. The plan of God throughout history points to the fact that Israel is a rebellious nation, but God always sends a deliverer. He always sends someone who would save his people. In verse 53, it says, You do not receive the law delivered by angels and not keep it. The Bible points to Christ, to this righteous one. Yet they broke the law. So what is Stephen closing his sermon by saying? You reject God. You reject his Messiah. You reject Christ. You're the ones who have broken the law just like your fathers did. You don't worship him like you should. And because of all of this, they want to kill Stephen. And in the last movement of our story, we see that they do. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And as they, as you would expect them to be. And it says they ground their teeth at him. Here are people having teeth grinding. They were so physically upset. They were so emotionally strained at what Stephen's saying. Was that you could hear them grinding their teeth. This is a mob. The temple, the Sanhedrin, did not actually vote to kill Stephen. The crowd overtook him and killed him. Look at what Stephen says. While they're grinding their teeth at him, he says that he sees Jesus Christ standing in heaven at the right hand of God. They see him in his glory, standing in the clouds. He says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this makes them even more upset. They plug their ears. They rush him outside of the city to stone him, to put him to death. Now notice, and he points ahead to a future time in Acts, the next person that is going to be a major focus of Acts. It says, they laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. You might ask, how did Luke get all this information about Stephen's sermon? Who was there listening to it? Saul, who would become Paul. Think about what kind of impact this sermon made on Paul. Even if he voted to kill Stephen in this time, later on when he accepts Christ, he must look back and think, oh, it was right there. I should have accepted the gospel. They were stoning Stephen, and Stephen is even compared by Luke to how Christ was killed. He says, Lord, as he's being stoned, receive my spirit. He prays that God would receive his spirit. He trusts that he would be united with Christ. And then lastly, he wants to forgive those who are killing him. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I find Stephen's death so fascinating. Why? Because like I said at the beginning of the sermon, Stephen experienced the glory of Christ on earth. He knew who this Christ was, what the gospel was. And even in death, he sees Christ in heaven 
His face shines like Christ. And notice he uses the word fell asleep. Now, Stephen actually died, but it shows that death is not forever. Stephen would fall asleep on earth being stoned. He would wake up in heaven to the glory and power of Christ, the one who he was being persecuted for. And he would see him in all his glory. So as we close this morning, two questions for us. Have you accepted salvation from Christ? Do you believe the gospel? This is what the whole point of the sermon is about. To point us to Christ, who is the Savior. All of those saviors that he talks about throughout history were imperfect, sinful men who needed Christ. They looked forward to the promise of Christ. Have you accepted his gospel? Have you understood his glory here on earth? Do you see his glory more as you go throughout the Christian life? And then lastly, how are you proclaiming his glory today? Are you willing to suffer like Stephen? doesn't mean you'll die necessarily. It doesn't mean that you'll have a chance to preach at your trial before you're put to death. How are you sharing the glory of Christ with others today? I want to point out something about Stephen in his sermon. Notice how well he knew his Old Testament. We often focus on the New Testament, which isn't bad. It's good. It tells us the gospel. Stephen preached the gospel from the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures well, and he used it to share the gospel. May we do that as we share the glory of Christ with others here on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant, Stephen. We thank you for his testimony. We thank you for his life. We thank you for how you enabled him to share the gospel with so many. We can't imagine the impact that his testimony had on Paul, on so many others. He was a martyr for you. He was the church's first martyr. And yet, through his death, Thousands more understood and heard the gospel. Through persecution, the church grew. And it's all because he understood the glory of your son. So we most of all thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice, his life, his death. And we be faithful in serving him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.